Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by organizers, activists, scholars, and many of the great revolutionaries of modern history. Our topic for this week is agriculture under capitalism. Under this system, the most basic necessity of life, food, is turned into a source of profit dominated by a smaller and smaller number of agribusiness corporations or monopolies. Environmental destruction and enormous waste are built into the capitalist agriculture system, while hundreds of millions around the globe go hungry, and while environmental destruction is all around us. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy or depend on this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, when Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Professor Wolf, we're talking about Marxist categories, and so I want to do a little bit of our show today about what Marx and Engels actually had to say about agriculture, about nature, about the environment. Their ideas were widely misinterpreted, misunderstood, or vulgarized in terms of their understanding of the relationship between human society and nature. In the last 10 years, there has been formidable Marxist scholarship from a number of writers and thinkers about Marxism and its perspective on the environment, its perspective on agriculture. By the end of this show, I want to tell our audience some of those books, some of those important works, and maybe you can mention some as well. But let's start at least with how Marx viewed agriculture and its impact, the impact on society, its impact on nature. You know, Marx in Capital, Volume One of Capital, wrote, and this was after the application of chemical fertilizers in agriculture, which were beginning, Marx wrote that, quote, all progress in capitalistic agriculture is a progress in the art, not only of robbing the laborer, but of robbing the soil. 
all progress in increasing the fertility of the soil for a given time is a progress towards ruining the lasting sources of that fertility. Frederick Engels, for his part, wrote this. Thus, at every step, we are reminded that we by no means rule over nature, like a conqueror over a foreign people, like someone standing outside of nature, but that we, with flesh, blood, and brain, belong to nature, exist in its midst, and that all our mastery of it consists in the fact that we have the advantage of all other creatures of being able to learn its laws and apply them correctly. And then Engels goes on to talk about how the application of human science and human labor to soil, to nature, has also a ruinous impact on nature. Anyway, Professor Wolf, again, Marxism was not understood at all within the context of the environmental movement. It was sort of a deterministic means of production development, the development and growth or the revolutionizing of the means of production meant everything that Marx had this narrow sort of deterministic view towards technology and nature. None of that is actually true. Yeah, you know, the Cold War had from 1945, basically till today, many horrific side effects and not the least of those was a kind of unspoken agreement among the people who didn't like socialism or who defended capitalism, that one could say pretty much anything, as long as it was negative about Marx or Marxism, whether it was accurate or not, didn't really matter. You were showing your bona fides by dumping on Marxism or dismissing it. And I can't tell you the number of times I have sat in the academic seminars in the best universities this country has, listening to people who clearly had no idea what Marxism was about, dump all over it to the approving nods of their fellow academics. It was painful because not only were they losing out on the insights of a pretty smart fellow, but they were embarrassingly childish in their dismissal of what they clearly didn't understand. It's sad. It meant that Marx's insights that have been cultivated and made into useful understandings all over the world were unavailable to the American public, with very few exceptions, for 75 years till the present. Even your program here is an attempt to correct, to make up for all the lost decades and to give people a sense of what was done. So let me say a couple of words right off the bat. With an amused glance, Marx loved to remind people of what I'm about to remind you of as well. And I learned this from Marx. During a huge part of European feudalism, roughly from the 5th to the 15th centuries in Europe, when the culture of Europe was completely shaped and dominated by the Roman Catholic Church, which was the universal church of the time. The church instructed all of its priests and all of its officials and all of its parishioners in the following fact. There can be no market in land. Land cannot be sold by anyone, bought by anyone, 
And the reason the church gave, and you can see it in, in Augustine, you can see it in Thomas Aquinas and the other great thinkers of that tradition, is because the land is not owned by anybody. And the reasoning is simple. God put the land there. God made the land. God presides over the land. God makes the land fertile and thereby gifts to the human race food, clothing, shelter, and everything else made out of what's in and on the land. And therefore, for any human being to say, I own this, is an arrogant insult to God, to Jesus Christ, or whoever it is you take as your leader in whatever religion you subscribe to. And so there was no market in land. Nobody had any land that they could sell. And if nobody has any land they can sell, well, then there's no basis for anyone to pay for access to land because the land is God's gift to the human race. Wow, said Marx, what an amazing criticism of the whole concept of land price, land rent, and all the rest of it. And yet, Marx says, look around. And he's writing, remember, in the 19th century. There were landlords everywhere. Anybody who built a piece of property up had to pay rent to whoever owned the land. The owner of the land could do what the Roman Catholic Church had declared unthinkable as a sin. That person could withhold the land from the community as his or her private property. Even if the community needed the land to grow the food upon which its very existence depended, an individual with private ownership could say, no, you're not going to get my land to grow corn or wheat or raise chickens unless you pay me whatever pretty much I want. Because if you don't, I won't let you, and that's what private property means, I can deny you access. Marx felt all of this didn't need a criticism from him. He took his hat off to the Roman Catholic Church, which had made all these criticisms into the law of the land. Well, we don't live in the feudalism that saw the Roman Catholic Church rise to its historic power and prestige. We live in capitalism, where the power and prestige of the Roman Catholic Church has been vastly diminished. A new set of rules established by capitalists came in. Land can be privately owned, and the private owner can withhold the land from the community of which that private landholder is a part. He can starve everybody else by not providing the land that could grow their food. And he can demand whatever he wants in the way of rent so that a huge portion of the output of goods and services produced by businessmen and women and by employees, mostly, of course, by the employees, a good part of that is given over to the landlord, paying the landlord's rent. 
they don't do, here comes the punchline, they don't do anything. The land on which rent is paid wasn't created by the person to whom the rent is paid. Human beings don't create land, at least not a significant part of it. The land was here before human beings ever got here. If you're religious, the land was put there by God. If you're not religious, you're at least clear human beings didn't put it there. So where do they get off distributing it to a small number of them, giving them the right to withhold it from the community and therefore get their hands on a significant portion of the work we all do? And then Marx, with a little twinkle in his eye, adds, you know, there's a simple way to understand this. If there were no landlords, we would still have the land. We don't need the landlord. We do need the land. And giving the landlord the right to withhold the land from us doesn't mean that the land isn't there. And that, therefore, modern capitalism is a disaster, not only for all the other reasons, its inequality, its instability, and all the rest. It's also a disaster because the way it has evolved agriculture, the use and the distribution of the land, has literally been to create a class of people who do no work. They are just owners of land, but they get a huge part of the fruit of the labor of those who do work simply because they have been able to grab a piece of what God or nature put there and develop the power to deny the rest of the community access to what was there before the community ever got there. And for him, this became then a profound basis for rejecting the whole concept of the private ownership of land. Last point, if you own a square mile of New York City, of Manhattan, where I am now sitting and speaking to you from, you are ipso facto a billionaire. You're not a billionaire because of anything you do. You're a billionaire because you have a legal piece of paper that says that square mile that existed there before you ever were born or your mother and father were born or your grandparents were born on back. Before there were human beings, that square mile was there. You've got your hands on it. And so you're a billionaire living the life of Riley with 12 yachts and maybe up there competing with Bezos and the others to get a rocket ship to carry you to space. And it's all because the wealth produced by other people, you don't do it, you're just a landlord, is paid to you for access to something you didn't put there. Amazing, Marx says, and a demonstration of the injustice at the root of capitalist agriculture. Very, very important foundational understanding. Richard, we're going to 
talk through agriculture. And I think that because of the nature of the subject, we may have to break this into two parts because it's a big topic. I mean, you have the issue of how people are going to be fed, which in a way is the essence of society. And in a way, the essence of Marxism, you know, I was reading again, one of my favorite small works by Frederick Engels, which is Engels' speech at Marx's gravesite when Marx dies. And he says, and it's very short, people can look it up for themselves, go online. It's really a short but brilliant speech. He said, just as Darwin discovered the law of development or organic nature, so Marx discovered the law of development of human history. The simple fact hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology, and you could include in that theology, that mankind must first of all eat, drink, and have shelter and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion, that therefore the production of the immediate material means and consequently the degree of economic development attained by a given people or during a given epoch form the foundation upon which the state institutions, the legal conceptions, art, and even the ideas on religion of the people concerned have been evolved and in the light of which they must therefore be explained instead of vice versa as had hitherto been the case. So instead of, as the church talked about the land and nature having been created by God and gifted to humans, Marxism takes at its point of sort of its foundational point that it's how human beings actually accessed land and nature and used their own labor to provide for themselves that which they needed to eat, to drink, have shelter and clothing first and foremost, and how they did that, how they produced it, under what terms, under what class arrangements once society developed into classes between haves and have-nots, all of the rest of what became characterized by Marx and Engels as the superstructure of society, all of it had in its foundation the question really of how people gained access to that which they needed to live, meaning above all else, food. Yes, we can see that the manufacturer, if you like, the farmer, the peasant, if you talk in Europe about people who work the land, they're called peasants. The United States, they're called farmers. And a lot seems to be at stake in these labels. You see exactly how capitalism has shaped agriculture and in turn how that way of running agriculture has shaped the rest of our society. You know, it's capitalism that converted farming from an activity done by millions upon millions of relatively small farming units into agribusiness. I mean, there is no more dramatic example of the destruction of millions of small businesses, the so-called family farm than is capitalism, especially in the United States. We allowed capitalist businesses to grow at the expense of those that may defeated in competition. Many firms became a few. Many small farmers became modern agribusiness. And we destroyed the family farm. We destroyed the democratic 
basis that that might have provided to this country, the defense of the huge conglomerates that have emerged is the argument that they alone, not those small farmers, can produce the food needed to feed an expanding population. Well, even putting aside whether the population would have expanded anything like it has if we had kept small units, but put aside that, it's not at all clear what those big companies are saying has any truth at all. We don't know what ways of producing food might have been developed on the basis of equality of producers. Everybody the same, not the capitalist system of destroying many and elevating a few into a dominant position. Here's what we do know, that what many have called monoculture, the fact that if you're going to have one huge business, you're going to be very interested in automation, in replacing workers with machines, in replacing the destruction of the soil that this kind of farming achieves by using synthetic fertilizers, that you may be destroying the soil, that you may be polluting the land, all of which we now know that modern capitalist agriculture has done. It has destroyed the land, just as that Marx quote you gave said it would. Capitalism may have produced a lot of food, but we don't know that that couldn't have been done without all the horrors that went along with the destruction of the family farm and the destruction of the fertility of the soil, the quality of our air and water, polluted as they have been particularly by agricultural production as much as by industrial production. So the jury is at best out. Capitalism did it its way. We're living with the results. But is that the best way? There's absolutely no reason to believe that. None. And when you add that the kinds of food, and here let me mention a book. I recently read it by Mark Bittman called Animal Vegetable Junk. It's a new book. It's out this year. I really recommend it because here's what his book shows, that what capitalism here in the United States, because that's his major focus, you may know his name, Mark Bittman, was for about 30 years the food critic of the New York Times, probably the most prestigious position in studying food in the United States. And Mark Bittman's conclusion in his book is that capitalism has subordinated agriculture to the profit system. Everything was decided based on what would be most profitable, not what would be most nutritious, not what would be best for our health. Wherever there was a contest between profitability, health, nutrition, profitability won, health and nutrition were rendered second. That's why we are, for example, the country with the number one obesity problem in the world. Processed food in which sugar, fat, and carbohydrates predominate, in which all the nutrition that might have been in the ingredients has long been cooked, baked, or chemically removed, and we're left to eat too much because the nutrition in each bite is too little, and that this has damaged our health, cost untold numbers of heart attacks and lives. 
when you put all this together, you have a very stark example of why capitalism is a system to which the people of this world can and should be saying, we can do better. I want to go back as we wrap up here about the evolution or devolution of agriculture. And we're going to talk about how the monopolization in agriculture, like the monopolization in media, which we talked about last time, or the monopolization in finance, which we talked about the week before, how that's impacting farmers. Uh, I'm looking at an article called, it's in the Guardian, the British newspaper, Foul Play, and the word foul is spelled F-O-W-L, Foul Play, the chicken farmers being bullied by big poultry. More than 97% of U.S. chicken farmers work with a big producer, but many say they are being treated unfairly and rules to help protect them are now in limbo. Now, this article is from four years ago, but last year when COVID hit poultry factories and large numbers of workers who weren't wearing masks, many of them immigrant laborers, got COVID and got sick and finally the plant started to shut down. These poultry farmers, 97% of all of them in the United States, the Tysons and Purdue were no longer buying their chickens. And so in the middle of a pandemic, while hunger was growing, you had all of these poor farmers who are really just proletarianized subcontractors now destroying their whole flocks of chicken in the midst of hunger when hunger was increasing in America. And it shows how the monopolization of agriculture, which the agribusiness, as you said, makes the argument, this is how we can feed people. It actually had the opposite impact. Yeah, you know, that's always been the remark. The monopolist knowing full well, and this is true in every industry, it's not just agriculture. The monopolist knows what they're doing. They're killing all their competition as best they can, destroying them with methods legal and illegal, ethical and unethical. They really don't care very much. And they're wiping out the middle class. They're wiping out the small producer, the small business. That's what the history of capitalism is about. And they know that the vast majority of businesses are small. So they've got to be a little bit careful as they destroy the majority because they, the big ones, are the minority. So they've got to come up with good PR. They've got to come up with something that they can say to make the average population not go where their sympathies would normally lie with the small farmer, with the small chicken producer, with the small businessman or woman struggling down the street, a member of their family, etc., so that's where they come up with, well, we can do it better than they can, or we can produce more than they can. It's not an argument that you should take seriously as a proposition, because most of the time it's nonsense. But it wasn't even put out as something that's true scientifically or accurately. It's pure PR. It has the exact same status as listening to an announcer on the television who's pushing a soap you should buy and says to you the following, buy this soap. If you use it properly, it will do wonders for your sex life. Well, when you see that, you giggle 
because you understand that you're not going to go out there and really begin to check out how does soap affect sex because you understand this is not a serious proposition. This is something to kind of get you to part with the money in your wallet to buy this particular soap more readily than you might otherwise. When you hear monopolists telling you about whatever it is they figured out they can pull out there to suggest you ought to let them do their ugly, destructive business, that's the amount of serious attention you should give it. The same that you would give to the claim that using this or that bar soap is going to transform your sex life. We're going to continue this discussion about agriculture and capitalism and the Marxist perspective Next week, of course, we've recommended, Professor Wolf, a number of writings. You mentioned the new book by Mark Bittman. What's the name again? Animal Vegetable Junk. It's well-written, and this is a man who knows more about the food business than anyone. It's really like an encyclopedia. I learned an enormous amount. We're going to recommend that book. We'll recommend other books. Of course, there's Fred Magdoff and Chris Williams' book. Uh, Fred has been a guest on my show over the years, creating an ecological society towards a revolutionary transformation. There are many others. We're going to provide on our Facebook page and Twitter the name of some of these titles. Again, we'll also recommend Frederick Engels' book, The Peasant War in Germany, 1525. You mentioned the Roman Catholic Church dominated European society for a thousand years and proclaimed that God and not individuals own the land, but the church certainly managed it. And there was a revolution directed against the Catholic Church in 1525 by the peasantry. Thomas Munzer, leader of the Anabaptists, said that they were fighting for heaven on earth, which meant to break up the land and work it communally without the intervention of the priests. Anyway, we're going to talk about all of that and more. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.